Alrighty, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 15, I'll read through verse 18. Please give your attention as God's word is read. Paul writes, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Okay. So here's just a brief recap from a couple of weeks ago, right? Uh, we are, of course, currently in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and this is a part of a larger section that began in chapter 8 and goes through to chapter 10, technically chapter 11, verse 1. Um, and in this section, it's a section that is dealing with, as we saw in verse 1 of chapter 8, concerning things offered to idols. So this is a question that the Corinthians raised with Paul, and it's a question that Paul is now addressing, and he takes some time. He, he, he goes into some depth and some length addressing this issue. It's a, this the word there, things offered to idols, is um, a dolothutos, which is a compound word which combines the word for idol or image with the word for sacrifice or slay or kill. So something sacrificed to an idol, something offered to an idol. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we saw a couple weeks ago or so, the chapter kind of lays out the problem and gives you a basic solution to the problem. The problem, of course, is things offered to idols, and the solution is that if eating food that has been offered to idols would cause my brother to stumble, then Paul says you should be willing to forego that liberty for the sake of your brother. So idols are nothing. That's one of the basic solutions to the problem here is the idol is nothing because there's only one God. Food offered to idol is fair game, but if operating in this knowledge causes my brother to stumble, if it places a stumbling block in his path of Christian sanctification that causes him to trip up and slow down his progress or maybe even retard his progress, then Paul says love dictates that you sacrifice that liberty for the sake of your brother. Now in chapter 9, Paul then shows how he puts that principle into practice in his life. How his entire life really is one of uh, showing this pattern of self-denial, this pattern of giving up his liberties for the sake of the gospel. In other words, Paul didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk in this manner. He didn't just say, this is what you should do, and then he went off and did something different. He actually was doing the same things that he had as he teaches others to do. So last time in verses 1 through 14, Paul lays out the fact, look, says, as an apostle, I have rights. I have things that ought to be done. I ought to be able to receive a living from what I'm doing. I ought to be able to bring along a believing spouse. I ought to be able to be free from having to work outside of the church in order to serve the church. He has these rights. He shows his proof 
of his apostolic position by saying, you are the proof of my apostleship. The fact that I'm here, the fact that this church has been planted, the fact that the Spirit has brought these people into this church is proof of his apostolic credentials. Paul has rights like every other uh, apostle to receive support from the Corinthians. And then he goes on and shows even the law of God says that the worker is worthy of his wages. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. In other words, the ox ought to be able to sort of eat while it's working. It ought to be able to be supported while it's working. And then Paul says, it's not just about oxen that God is, is concerned about. This is a principle that the worker is worthy of his wages. In fact, that's what we saw at the end of the chapter, or that end of that section in verses 12 and 13, how the priests in the temple were to receive their livelihood from the offerings that people brought. They when, if it was a food offering, the priests were able to take a portion of it. If it was a money offering, the priests were able to receive a portion of it. Paul says there, he's look, look, I've sown spiritual seed in you. I've given you the, the precious gift of the gospel. Is it anything to ask that I receive some material benefit from you? I've given you the greater good, the spiritual seed of the gospel. Is it anything to ask that you, re- that you receive or you show to me some material wages for my efforts. But despite all of these rights, Paul's overriding desire, if you will, was that the gospel should not be hindered. And if he perceived that anything would hinder the advance of the gospel, he would sacrifice that in order to promote the gospel. His desire was to be willing to endure all things. So, how many things? (laughs) All the things. Paul is willing to endure all the things in order that the gospel should not be hindered. That's what we saw in verse 12. So now that brings us here to verses 15 through 18, which, again, as I said earlier, serves to kind of complete this initial thought that Paul began in verse 1, which itself is an extended personal illustration of his point in chapter 8. So we're going to see three things here in this passage. Now, if, if you have, <laughs> my, my, my point titles aren't exactly creative in the sense, well, they're alliterative, okay, so I mean, I found three Bs, but last week it was, I think it was like Paul's principle, Paul's argument, Paul's this, Paul's that, and I'm continuing the theme of Paul's boast, burden, and bounty. It was, I tried to find a word that began with B that meant reward. So bounty is what you got. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Thesaurus. Okay. But in this section, we're going to see three points here. First, Paul's boast of being able to preach the gospel free of charge to the Corinthians. Paul's burden to preach the gospel and how he sees himself as, now this is hyperbole, but he sees himself as cursed. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And then Paul's bounty or his reward that he is not abusing his authority in the gospel. His reward was that he was able to offer this free of charge so as to not abuse his authority in the gospel. We'll look at these in more detail as we go along. Paul's boast in verse 15. Now if you recall from last time, two weeks ago, in verses 1-14, through 14, I, I believe the count was 13 rhetorical questions that Paul asked in that section. All these questions that he is asking the Corinthians that in which the answer should be obvious 
to anyone who knows, right? Am I not an apostle? Yes, you are. Have you not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, you have. Are you not my work in the Lord? Yes, you are. So on and so forth. So he asked 13 questions, 13 rhetorical questions before getting to his point in verse 12, the second half of it. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, the right that is due to me as an apostle. We have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul's rights are due to him for his position as an apostle. And they're due to him on the principle that the one who preaches ought to receive his living from the gospel. Verse 14, as the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But he did not use these rights. Paul relinquished these rights lest he hinder the gospel of Christ. And verse 15 picks up on the same theme. Look again at verse 15 where he repeats essentially what he said in verse 12. Nevertheless, or but I have used none of these things. None of my rights have I used, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should take my, make my boasting void. He's used none of the rights that are due to him. Paul had made a conscious decision, a conscious effort in his ministry to not be supported by the local congregation. And this was a practice that Paul exercised everywhere he went. Now, it's not that he didn't receive any support from anyone. It's just that he never burdened that local congregation to support him. He always received support from other churches for his ministry. So when Paul was in Corinth, he was getting support from those in Macedonia. When Paul was in Macedonia, he was receiving support from someone else. Paul never burdened the local congregation. In fact, if you remember when we looked at Acts chapter 18, as we began uh, this section, and as we began the book of Acts, or sorry, the book of 1 Corinthians, when he arrives in Corinth in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, he starts ministering to the people in Corinth, and then he supports himself by engaging in a tent-making ministry, engaging in the the labors of making tents, along with Priscilla and Aquila. He meets these two uh, Jewish people, this married couple, and they are tent-makers, and he's a tent-maker, and he is supporting himself. He is working to support his own ministry. And that was what happened in the book of Acts. In fact, in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, when he is in Miletus, talking to the Ephesian elders, he tells them, look, I've coveted no one's silver, I've coveted no one's gold or no one's apparel. In other words, when he was supporting, when he was ministering to the Ephesians, I didn't ask for anything from you guys. And again, it's not to say that Paul didn't receive support for his ministry. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, that when he was in need... He was a burden to no one because the saints of Macedonia supported him. So again, in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, look, I didn't burden you guys to support me. I didn't burden you guys to give me a living because not only was I making a living on my own, but I was also being supported by the greater church. So Paul would serve a local congregation free of charge and then would work to meet his needs and or receive support from others. That was Paul's practice. I like what he says here at the 
second half of verse 15. It says, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. So, so you can almost like think, it's like, you know, Paul's writing this and someone might think, well, you know, he's, he's mentioning this to sort of like guilt trip them <laughs> into supporting him, right? You know, have you ever done that where you, you know, you, you go to somebody and you say something, you know, you say something and then you intend to mean the opposite and then you sort of guilt trip them into doing that? It's like, I've never asked you to take out the trash or do the dishes. And then you're like, okay, I guess I should take out the trash and do the dishes. Right? Um, Paul is not writing this to guilt trip the Corinthians. Paul's intent in writing this was not to guilt them into financially supporting him. He wasn't writing with his sort of like his fingers crossed behind his back, right? You know, I don't want to receive support from you. Wink, wink, I kind of do want to receive support from you. And I'm kind of writing this so that you will get the message, right? He's not winking his eye. He's not crossing his fingers. He's expressing a genuine thought. He is expressing how he made it his practice not to burden local congregations while ministering to them. And again, in doing so, he is in no way contradicting what he says in verse 14 when he says that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. He's not contradicting it. This is Paul's personal conviction. This is Paul giving up his liberty, giving up his rights to receive a living from the gospel. Paul is not saying this is how everyone should behave. He's saying this is how I behave. This is my choice to do this. And we've mentioned it before in context with uh, the book of Corinthians here, the first Corinthians here, that in the Greco-Roman world, teachers were paid by their students, and that's, that's how they made their living. So the teachers would go around, and they would charge for their teaching, and they would build a following, and it was all about building the following. It was all about getting the monetary support. And the more that you charged, and the greater your following, the better you were seen by those in the culture around them. And there is no shortage in our own day of charlatans, right? <laughs> TBN, I guess, would be one network you can watch and probably would be half filled with charlatans. <laughs> um, you know... All these people who you know, tell you, you know, put one hand on your television set, the other hand on your wallet <laughs> as they ask you for money to build up their crystal cathedrals or their big you know, uh, sanctuaries, and then you go into some of these churches and they're opulent. Right? You know, look at how the Roman Catholics lived in the medieval period. You, know, you go into those churches, they are opulent, gold everywhere, arch ceilings, statues, and, and everything, and... I remember back in Chicago, there was this really big mansion in a very expensive area of town. And I often wondered who lived in that mansion. Because you don't really see mansions in downtown Chicago that much anymore. That, that era has kind of gone away. And then I found out that was the Cardinal's mansion. <laughs> the, the Cardinal, the Archbishop of the Diocese of Chicago, had this giant mansion in Lincoln Park area of Chicago, which is a very, very pricey place to live. I wonder how that vow of poverty is going along. <laughs> I guess you don't have to worry about working if they just give it all to you. <laughs> um, no shortage of charlatans in today's world. All the usual suspects in Christianity who are, who are in it only for the money or only for the popularity. You have these ministries who prey on the vulnerable people. You have ministers who live exorbitant lifestyles. That's another thing that you saw in Chicago a lot. 
south side and west side, which were the uh, sort of the downtrodden areas of the city, you know, the inner city, where a lot of the African Americans lived. And you see these black preachers driving around in these giant Cadillacs, wearing these expensive suits in an area where the people could barely scrape two dimes together to, to make ends meet. Do you think this hinders the gospel when you see that? Think of all of the, 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 you know, the, the charlatans again on TV, and every time there's a scandal. You don't think that hinders the gospel, the advance of the gospel? I mean, people don't need an excuse. The unbeliever does not need an excuse to reject the gospel, but we don't need to add fuel to the fire, is what I'm saying, right? And when we do this, when you see this happening, when you see false teachers out there peddling false gospels, it hinders the gospel. It throws roadblocks to the gospel. Just listen to the skeptics. Listen to anybody who's quote-unquote left the church, and they'll tell you it'll probably be something, well, you know, I thought the minister was a fraud, or they were asking for too much money, or, you know, whatever. You know, there's always some kind of, some kind of thing going on that, that, that gives them an excuse, but we often hinder the gospel in that way. So Paul then engages here in some hyperbole when he says it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Like many things, boasting is not inherently bad or wrong. It's what you're boasting in that makes it bad or wrong. If you're boasting in yourself, if you're boasting in your ministry, if you're boasting in the size of your church, if you're boasting in your salary, if you're boasting in how many TV stations and radio stations your ministry is on, that's bad. Prophet Jeremiah says, do not boast in these things. Boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in the fact that you know the Lord. So boasting in the Lord is fine. And Paul's boast here, as we'll see, wasn't in himself or his preaching skills or his leadership skills, but in the fact that he was able to offer the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge. That's my boast. And he doesn't want the Corinthians to take that away from him. He would rather die. Again, hyperbolic language, right? You know, Paul says, I would rather be cursed than that any one of my brethren should, should not be saved. He's not literally saying he wants to be cursed. He's engaging in hyperbolic language. But the point he's trying to make is, look, I've done these things in order not to hinder the gospel. I want to make the gospel free. I don't want to profit off of it. Okay? I don't want to profit off of this. That's his boast. Now let's look at his burden in verses 16 and 17. Because you see, according to Paul's own self-assessment, his preaching of the gospel was not in, in itself something that he felt he could boast in. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Why, Paul? For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's preaching the gospel was not something he boasted in because necessity was laid upon him. That word necessity speaks of sort of a necessity that is imposed either by circumstance or by duty or by some kind of law. So he says, something was laid upon me that told me I had to preach the gospel. So because I'm preaching the gospel, it's not something I decided to do on my own authority So I don't boast in that. I was called into this. I was brought into this, in a sense, as he will say later, almost against his will, but we'll get into that. 
But Paul did not see his preaching of the gospel as optional. It was not optional for him. And we're all very familiar with Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter 9. After Paul encounters the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he is told, go into the city and wait. Go into the city and wait. So Paul goes and waits. And then the risen Jesus appears in a dream to Ananias and talks to Ananias and says, you need to go and anoint Paul. You need to commission him for ministry. And he tells him in Acts 15, 9.15, that Paul is his chosen vessel. Paul is a chosen vessel of mine. Because Ananias says, oh wait, you said, you said Paul, right? Well, actually he was Saul. He says, go and talk to Saul. And he's like, you mean the Saul that's been persecuting us? It's like, yeah, that's Saul. Go and talk to him. But he's persecuting. He's like, no, you go because Saul is a chosen vessel of mine. So how much choice did Paul have in his ministry? As much as Jeremiah did, right? As much as Jonah did, right? Jonah was called to preach to the Ninevites. And what did Jonah do? He ran the opposite way. It's like, I don't want to do this. I'm going to go away. God sent a storm. God sent a fish to get Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. Necessity was laid upon him. Jeremiah says the same thing. It's like, I wish I could stop speaking, but the words in me will not stop. They're burning in my heart. I need to get them out. Paul had no choice, in a sense. Necessity was laid upon him. In fact, he sees himself as cursed if he doesn't preach the gospel. Now, again, we're not meant to see this as salvation by gospel preaching. So it's not cursed in a sort of like a damnation sense. But again, Paul here, just, he's taking his calling very seriously. He is taking his calling very seriously. And it can be easy to forget this. But ministry, gospel ministry, is not just a job. It is, it is more than a job. You know, like the, the old Navy slogan, you know, it's not a job, it's an adventure. <laughs> and then you find yourself in a boat somewhere, you know, off in you know, the boonies. Anyway, it's not just a job. That's why ministers of the Word are called. This is meant to highlight the seriousness of the task and the charge. A man aspiring to the ministry can't just say that he was called to be a minister. That call has to be confirmed by what is called the external call. So you've got the internal call. You've got the external call. A guy who has an internal call is like, I feel I need to preach the gospel. But if, if no one says, no, you're not. <laughs> if you go and preach the gospel in various places and people say, you're not very good or you're not called to this task, then you really don't have a call. The call has to be confirmed by an external call of the gospel. So you, don't, you can't just have this gospel itch, as I was one writer called it. It has to be something that is confirmed both internally and externally. And Paul here was called. He takes his calling very seriously. Christ, in a sense, Jesus Christ, knocked me off my donkey on the way to persecute Christians and told me, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It doesn't get much more serious of a call than that, <laughs> right? So Paul continues in verse 17, For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. And again, he points out here that if his preaching of the gospel, if it was done willingly, uh, then he might be worthy of a reward. But in the case, again, in the case of Paul, he was a chosen vessel. 
necessity was laid upon him. And that's what Paul means when he says he was entrusted with a stewardship. He was entrusted with a, 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 a task by a master. The master called him to a task. He was a steward. He is one who manages the wealth and the, and the household of another. That's what a steward is. Now again here on these words here, willingly and against my will. I don't think we're meant to see this, that Paul preaches the gospel against his will, like, you know, by means of an external coercion. Like, I really don't want to be doing this, but I'm being forced into this. That's not what Paul is saying here. Again, to be sure, that day that he set out to Damascus, he woke up that day to persecute Christians. And I think the furthest thing from his mind would have been that he would have been called to preach the gospel. But it doesn't mean Paul regrets what he does and that he seeks to be free from it because he is against his will here. Because this is the very same Paul who wrote in Philippians, right? To live is Christ. My life is to serve Christ and His cause and His kingdom and His church. That's why he says when he's writing that prison epistle of Philippians, he says, look, I don't know what my fate is. I want to continue to serve you, but I also know that going away to be with Christ is far better for me. And he's like, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. <laughs> it's like, my personal desire is to go away and be with Christ. But I know my sense of duty says to stay here and continue serving the church. Paul would echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 84, who says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Again, these words of Paul, in a sense, are hyperbole. In fact, this verse kind of makes me think of what Jesus says in Luke 17. So keep your finger here and let's turn to Luke 17 for a moment. And I'll be looking at verses 5 through 10. Luke chapter 17, 5 through 10, it's a Kind of a parable, in a sense. So in chapter 17, verse 5, Paul, or Paul, Luke here tells us, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Verse 6, So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it, will, it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not say, rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So hearing what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 9, it reminds me of this because, in a sense, I think that's what Paul is kind of channeling from this when he says that. Look, I don't deserve a reward. This is my duty. <laughs> you know, the slave, when he's done his duty, does not expect to get thanked by the master because he's done what was commanded of him, right? You know, and I know we reward you know, our kids and whatever. You know, we tell them to do something and they do it. And we're like, oh, you did what I told you to do. 
you know, and we reward our kids, and that's not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but in a sense, when, when all we've done is what has been asked of us, then why should we expect to receive any kind of reward or benefit from it? You know, I, I, working in the corporate world for 30 years or so, I always ran into people from time to time who felt like they were not getting what they deserved at work. It's like, it's like you know, I slave, I slave, I should get a raise. It's like, well, I mean, you're getting a paycheck, right? You're getting a place to sit your butt down and work. You're getting, you know, health insurance. Like you're getting all these benefits. You know, it's like, is the employer supposed to, you know, give you more because you're doing exactly what they asked you to do? You know, it's like... The, the paycheck is basically what, you know, that's, that's what you're getting for what you're doing. I, I, didn't, I didn't get that. So at the end of the day, we're all just unworthy servants doing our duty. That's what Jesus says. Now, in other words, by saying that, we can't put the Lord in our debt. We can't do stuff in this life and then somehow put the Lord in our debt so that he rewards us. Wow! You were so good. You did above and beyond what I asked you. I'm going to give you a reward because you've earned it. We cannot put the Lord in our debt where He owes us a reward. We will receive a reward. Do not make any mistake. We will receive a reward. It's just that even the reward will be all of grace. (laughs) The reward itself will be all of grace because again, we cannot put the Lord in our debt. The fact that He rewards us at all is an act of grace. <laughs> exactly. You know, what, is, what, are, what are our wages? <laughs> death, right? Wages of sin is death. It is the free gift of God, which is grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has a stewardship, and he must carry out his calling as a faithful servant. So then what is Paul's reward? Well, let's look at his bounty in verse 18 of chapter 9. Paul's desire in verse 18, he says here, What is my reward then that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority? His desire was to present the gospel freely, to present the gospel without any kind of... um, tax or whatever, okay? Paul did not want to appear to the Corinthians as those other charlatans in Corinth who used their teaching as a means of income. And again, this is not a contradiction of verse 14. It is good and right to support those who preach the gospel. Yes, I do appreciate the paycheck I get from, from the church. Um, but Paul here, as he says, in, you know, Paul says in, in Galatians 6.6, 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. To Timothy, Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be counted of wor- uh, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. This is Paul not wishing to lay a stumbling block on the Corinthians in front of fellow believers. Again, this was his personal choice. Consider someone coming out of a situation in Corinth uh, in which you know, a certain level of monetary giving was expected. They might be skeptical of anyone asking for money for their services, especially when you see these huckster ministers that we talked about earlier living very well off of the backs of their congregations. 
I mean, I, again, going back to the TV preachers, you never see them in dirty coveralls, right? <laughs> Preaching in a shack, right? You know, with the shingles falling down. They're always dressed, you know, in the, the finest clothing, and, you know, they're in these nice, you know, pristine-looking sanctuaries that cost more than, I'm sure, you know, any home that, you know, any number of homes that the people live in. In an atmosphere where teachers were charged for their teaching, Paul wanted to relinquish this right he had so as to not hinder the gospel. And Paul was careful not to abuse his authority in the gospel. And would that all ministers were careful not to abuse their authority. In the message this morning, we're, look, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. And it talks about, Jesus talks about true and false shepherds. In that, so I'm kind of borrowing from that a little bit. But the false shepherds here use their position of authority to abuse the sheep. Jesus in that story depicts the false shepherds as those who steal and kill and destroy the sheep. They're seen crawling over the wall into the sheepfold to steal, kill, and destroy. And sad to say, there is not a lot of discernment out there in the world. Because there are plenty of wolves in sheep's clothing who seek to take advantage of people and devour the sheep. Ministers and ministries that, that play on the gospel of Jesus Christ for their own gain. It's sick and twisted, but false teachers are sick and twisted. And gullible people fall prey to them. Now, how can you tell false from true teachers? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to give you a few clues here. These are not infallible um, clues, but these are certainly red flags that you should look at. If, if a teacher is doing any or all of these things, certainly would be something to consider. First, is the teacher accountable to anyone? Is the teacher accountable to anyone? Again, you look at some of these big-time scandals in these big-time churches, and often what you find out is that the teacher who is involved in the scandal was not accountable to anyone. And there may even have been sort of like a quasi-accountability set up. Maybe there might have been a board of elders set up that are supposed to hold the minister to account, but they often don't do their job, or they're often just sort of yes-men to the minister. So is the teacher accountable to anyone? Is there, is there some recourse you have that if the teacher goes off the rails, you can bring the weight and authority of another body upon it? Secondly, does the teacher exhibit humility in a servant's heart? Again, that's something you need to look at. You know, is your teacher, does he have a servant's heart? Is he humble? Is he, is he, does he listen? Is he teachable? It's not unusual to see, you know, they may speak kindly, right? But then behind the scenes, they may be those who, you know, who are bullies, right? Again, in some of these... Uh, uh, very infamous scandals that have come across lately. You know, the minister, you find out behind the scenes, was a bully. He was, he was beating the sheep. He was not caring for the sheep. He was not humble. He would not listen. When, even when people had the courage to speak words to this person or these people, they would not listen. Third, is the teacher living by a standard of living beyond those whom he serves? So this has often been something that you, you know, hear is like a rule of thumb for what should a minister be paid. Well, a minister should be paid about the same as the average of his congregation. 
So not, not the least, but not the most, right? The minister should not be living a lavish lifestyle in the backs of his congregation. So is the teacher living beyond uh, a lifestyle of those whom he serves? And then fourth and finally, is the teacher more concerned with caring and feeding the sheep, or is he more concerned with being right? Is he more concerned with having people listen to him is he more concerned with building a following? Again, these are not infallible. A true minister of the gospel can fall into any one of these if he's not careful. Um, but these are red flags. These are certainly red flags that should raise suspicion. And Paul's primary, primary concern was making sure the gospel went forth unhindered. And he would do whatever was needed to ensure this. And he did not want to abuse the authority that he had. I mean, think of the authority Paul had. If anyone could have abused that authority, it would have been Paul. He, I mean, he, you know, the book of Acts talks about how Paul's ministry is so strong and powerful that, that people would pass by a shadow or they would take a handkerchief that had touched him and lay it on a sick person and it would bring them healing. I mean, Paul could have milked that for a lot of money if he wanted to, if he was so inclined, but he did not. And he was very concerned that he does not abuse that authority that he has in the gospel. Well, we'll stop here for this morning. Uh, The next time, which, Lord willing, will be next Sunday, the 5th of June, we'll look at uh, at least verses 19 through 23. I'm not sure if we'll go beyond that, but we'll look at least at those verses. But I'll stop here.